Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ultimate OE. As most of you would know, Curran and I run a business called Ultimate OE. We specialise in sending young Kiwis and Aussies to Canada and Scotland to work in the hunting industry. Applications for next hunting season, so 2020, both in Canada and Scotland, are now open. As hunters, we're not often happy with inauthentic experiences. We're always looking for something adventurous, more exciting and more unique. Same goes for overseas experiences. We deliver once-in-a-lifetime opportunities working for the best outfitters in Canada and the best hunting estates in Scotland. Our train-before-you-go setup means that we can secure all the best jobs with the best employers, with the best people and the best spots all ahead of time because they know you're going to turn up with the knowledge and skills to hit the ground running when you get there. If you're interested in an OE in Canada or Scotland next year based around hunting in the mountains, it doesn't get much better in my opinion. If you think you might be interested or just want to learn a little bit more about what we do, feel free to get in touch and get us on email at ultimateoemail at gmail.com. You can flick us a PM on Facebook or Instagram, either through the Educated Hunter or Ultimate OE pages. Either will work, whatever blows your hair back. Enjoy the show. There you go. We'll all go at this end. Perfect. Well, thanks for joining me, Dave. I really appreciate it. We're uh, my pleasure. connect up across across the world. It's uh, good for Otago University zoology graduates to stay together, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Do you use your zoology degree very often, Dave? Oh, on the rare occasion where I can kind of bust out a bit of uh, animal facts, um, but I found that it's better for winning Trivial Pursuit than actual on-the-ground uh, yeah, real-time usage, the old zoo degree. It's, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, my lecturers would probably be horrified to find that I would say there's two or at least a few, a handful of animals that have met their demise based on my zoology training. So that's about the only place I've ever used it. Uh, and to, a, oh, you've got to know your enemy, don't you? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And to win the odd argument with a anti-hunting greenie that doesn't really know what they're talking yeah. about, that's also quite useful. Well, I thought I'd, I'd have all this ammunition when we started the show. I, I assume there'd be a lot more blowback uh, for there being hunting on TV than there was. So the reality is that most Kiwis understand that you know these animals uh, need to be managed, and the best way to do it is through hunting. Yeah. But um, I was I was quietly hoping for a, a few big battles with uh, you know the, the, the Green Brigade, but it hasn't really come to the fore. <laughs> the ones that that do send angry emails tend to be uh, expat Brits and um, you know the odd uh, the odd German. Right. And then you, you just point them and you explain to them, hey, you know, if you come to New Zealand, this is an important part of our culture. So, you know, you, yeah, and usually they, they see the light. They say, oh, I didn't understand that was the case. And, you know, oh. but yeah. yeah, every now and again, you, you hit a brick wall with some Muppet. But. Well, I once wanted to um, collate all the, the emails that we, we had sent and do a best of. But, you know, it, <laughs> it's like adding fuel to the fire. Yeah, you probably would. To, it would be kind of like... 
what's the TV show that does like that angry tweets section where they have the actual oh, yeah. person stand up and read the angry tweets on Kimmel yeah 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 it would be quite funny if you did angry yeah. anti-hunting emails if you if you picked the right ones yeah yeah well that uh, Tom Tom Jones character he, he he fans the flames pretty well I think he it's part of his uh, persona he's got some amazing stuff on his his Facebook page I've seen but I used to deal with all the uh, ITM fishing show uh, email correspondence when I was working on that show and um, I I got in trouble one time for I had a few wines the show had just been on and I jumped on Facebook immediately afterwards to answer all the questions and this one guy had written all the stuff about I hope a shark rips your face off Matt you know rah 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 and I took it quite personally and I, I made some um, disparaging comments towards him and his mother and um, <laughs> Monday morning I rock up to work and Matt's like, hey Dave, you, you can't say that, Matt. You've got to take the high ground. I think I actually said eat a bag of dicks at one point, which is uh, a bit of a low blow. But um, <laughs> after that we took the approach of just saying, people don't want to listen to reason and scientific kind of um, you know, zoological stuff I throw at them then you just have to say well thanks I'm pleased you're a big fan of the show and keep watching there's more awesome to come, you know, footage to come and you yeah. just take that ultra happy approach and that often would rile them up even further but well, uh, yeah, yeah I mean you gotta look, look at a lot of the time what their motivation for sending an angry message like that really is when, you know you, you gotta think in my own like if you think about yourself what kind of position would you have to be in to need to write something on a you know, on a comment board or on a public forum like that, and the answer is they're obviously got some horrible shit going on in their lives, generally speaking. Although they're just that misinformed that they're on a different planet, so you, you do have to treat mm. them with a little bit of empathy. I think I've learned as well in the title to one of these clips we put up online a couple of years back. We we're up at the Three Kings. We've been spearfishing up there, and we encountered a whole heap of uh, paper nautilus in the water. And it's a it's a rare sight to see because often they live out in quite deep waters. So in the title of the video, it said super rare paper Nautilus encounter because of the rarity of the situation being captured on camera, not to do with the rarity of the paper Nautilus. And so all these people watch this video, these mainly Americans, and they'd written in saying, how dare you, these rare creatures that you guys are dicking with. And Because Dre, obviously, he's Tong, and he, he took one to eat and, and, and put it on the barbie. And we'd broken a couple of shells just because they're so delicate. But people saw the word rare and assumed that we're in reference to the you know how, how many of these things are, whereas there's, there's millions and millions of them. Yeah. But um, I got inundated with, with emails from people um, upset about it. So I've learned to actually explain in the title not to have you know, a loaded term like rare. It's... Um, yeah, if you use the word unique would have been better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess you have to be pretty, pretty careful. So, yeah. early beginnings. I know we'll get into it in a minute. I know you weren't a natural born hunter right from the start, but you got your sort of. Well, where did you start? University. You did zoology, but film as well, which is probably yeah, um, fairly poignant to what you're actually doing at the moment. And where'd you go from there? Was it straight into the ITM fishing show or? No, I I wanted to do a postgrad diploma with Natural History New Zealand, based out of Otago, and so they had just started a program uh, in the first year intake, and I applied, and they said, look, you know, like the cut of your mustard, um, but well, the cut of your jib, but you need to go and get some um, credits, some shows under your belt. So I went to Auckland and started working on a whole lot of horrific TV shows, reality shows, Treasure Islands, and that kind of thing. 
uh, and then um, got my break on a sports show, which it was you know, pretty rudimentary, but it was a good way to learn. And then from there, I started doing camera work and bouncing around the place doing travel shows and then went to the UK, worked for Discovery and History and then yeah, came home after a few years with some pretty hard-hitting credits on my belt and um, started doing the ITM fishing show. So yeah, and then from there, got a feel for what's required to tell stories in the outdoor environment. And uh, after five years doing that and getting seasick and you know, <laughs> getting, well, I had a freezer full of fish, but now now I've got a freezer full of venison. So yeah, yeah decided to to change tack. Went on a hunt down south with um, one of the fellas who's one of our core members now, Dan, uh, and realized, man, there's so much more rewarding storytelling to be had in the hills rather than in the five square meters in the back of a boat. Um, yeah, I've always looked at so. fishing and filming fishing and the the limited amount of filming or fishing I did over the years used to drive me nuts. A, because, you know, unlike the hunting, I, I wanted to be fishing. Like with the filming of the mm. hunting, you still feel like you're part of it and the pulling right. the trigger doesn't mean anything to me. But sitting there watching other people catch fish, I've always struggled with. And then secondly, being stuck on a boat, man, there's only a certain number of angles you can film. Yeah, yeah, you've got the you got the wind to deal with, the sun, spray, and you know it's it's so limiting. And you did right. I, I when I started the show, working on the show, I, I wasn't a hardcore fisherman, but by the time I left, I moved to the Bay of Islands, and I was right into my fishing. And I'd get quite jealous. I'd be like, "Ah, you prick! You've pulled in this big fish." Whereas when you're hunting, I'm so stoked when we succeed because you're all part of it. You're all pulling in the same direction to try and achieve the aim. And I actually have had some times in the last year or two that I've spotted the animal first or I've, I've kind of had, uh, yeah, I can lay claim to the success of the, of the hunt based on my input rather than me just being a passenger documenting, uh, as things unfold. Yeah, that's cool. And, when you got involved with the fishing show, was it pretty early on in that, or had it been going for a while, or was it fairly early? No, nah, it was right on the cusp. Matt, Matt had just um, been over to do Letterman off the back of the jumping of the helicopter onto the marlin, which right. went bananas. It's one of those early viral sensations, and uh, it's quite a hard case. Like, there's a lot of parallels with with Matt's story and the story of the Hunters Club, but they they started off in a little garage operation and bought some pirated software for editing and and. Like Matt tells a great story about it. in the early days, they were just using uh, radio rip music. Like they had who let the docks out in one of their episodes without realizing <laughs> the royalties you'd need to pay for a song that big. And uh, so they were making it up as they, they went along. And then they, they needed someone when they got to this point where it was starting to blow up that had a bit more of TV, a formal um, background uh, that wasn't you know, entirely self taught. So I got on board at that stage about four or five years in and then, yeah, got through to the tenth season and by that stage I'd yeah, we'd we ticked a lot of boxes and, and had a lot of fun. Yeah. And yeah, I was looking for a new challenge. But um we still we still stay in touch and he's a he's a bloody good mate and yeah, real real top top dog. Well you, you from a filming perspective and throwing it back to the cameraman stuff, given that you are on a five by five square meter boat, you need somebody who character wise can really carry that T V show. I've always been mm. And I guess it's probably testament to a lot of the success he's had is his ability to interact with others who are perhaps not natural born on camera, but also carry a TV show in terms of entertainment and enthusiasm. Well, Kiwis are shockers as well because you have some really big personalities that, you know, you're at the pub and they're telling great stories and they're real, you know, 
larger than life, and then you put them on a boat and they hook up to a fish and put a camera in their face, and they well, you just we're really bad at underplaying things. So you say, "Tell me about it. How's that fish?" And they'll look at it and go, "Oh yeah, yeah, pretty good. It's a right, eh? Yeah. But yeah. if the camera wasn't there, they'd be hooping and hollering and high fiving and yeah, having the time of their life. So Matt was good at bringing out the best in people around him. Yeah. But at the same time, all the heavy lifting was done by him. He had to he had to be on the entire time. Uh, to you know, just and so it was. I think it was pretty exhausting because you're always trying to outdo yourself, especially when we were at one point we were doing 26 episodes a year, 26 Ooh, half hours, and so it was rough. just yeah, quite hard turnaround. So with Hunters Club, I wanted to share the load so that the, the boys didn't get burnt out at all, um, and that, that they genuinely enjoyed every moment that we were filming, or not every moment, but when they succeeded, it, it, there was no, it wasn't just laid on for camera, so. Hence, they only do two or three eps a year, and and they 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 plan them to a T, and they you know it's their time to shine, and they when they fail, it's equally as uh, as compelling because they've put so much time and energy and effort, yeah. and they want to succeed because it's it's reflective of them as hunters. If you know that's their one episode of the year and they fail, that they get pretty pissed off. But well, sometimes a, that that actually translates well on camera. Yeah, exactly, and it, it's a great template, I think, sharing that load because you know the reality of starting a tv show in new zealand i suspect is you know you guys are a really big fish but in a new zealand's a pretty small pond so mm. you know it's hard to be full-time and do what we do particularly we'll do what you guys do particularly when you're getting started up and being able to yeah have guys that can dedicate the time and effort to make three or four really good quality shows each and still hold down a quote-unquote real job um i think is a really strong um model that you guys have run with well the other thing is that when we first started sam sam had uh he was married with with one child but now all five of the fellows have got um kids and wives and mortgages and all the additional things that come with you know growing up so it's the the currency that we're short on is is time yeah uh not so much, you know, money these days. It's it's about trying to get brownie points with the wife so that you can spend <laughs> two weeks in the hills with me over bloody the raw and 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 not uh, end up with divorce papers on the front doorstep when you get home. Yeah, well, that's all very well for those boys, but what about you? Do you go on all the hunts? Oh, mate, it's um the missus is used to it, and so are the kids. But the good thing is, when I'm home, I'm home. I'm in the edit suite, which is in our, our little office that I'm sitting in now at home and uh so i have more time with the kids then and i'll, I'll happily edit from 10 till 2 in the morning uh if if need be so yep. there's a there's a flip side to me being away for long periods and as a cameraman that's kind of that's what i signed up for and that's what the missus and in fact i think that the wife quietly enjoys me being away and having <laughs> time to herself i've been times where i've come home with a you know bags full of dirty rotten gear and just crap everywhere and she gets a bit dark it's like i wish you were still you know in the hills because i had my nice little routine and you've come and burst my bubble yeah but you know that's just the way it is yeah i've had that comment more than once my friend I can yeah that much <laughs> yeah it's actually quite nice when you were away um yeah. Yeah. yeah well that's pretty cool man so the, the trigger of getting it all fired up the hunters club was going down south and doing a hunt with dan is that what you said yeah yeah he, he'd, he'd written us an email at itm and said I challenge you guys to come and showcase hunting in the way that you, you have shown fishing. And it was quite a well-written email. I was just saying, you know, fishing, you, you, you're showing the warts and all side of fishing, but I think you could do the same with hunting. I'm not seeing hunting represented on TV 
that's indicative or reflective of the hunting that I do. So I want to take you on a on a mission. And so we went down there and uh, we we had a couple of days at Mount Nick Station where we chop it in and then um, did another hunt. And I just loved it. But at the time, I was completely naive to it. All. I remember we're on this uh, hunting block and there were the fellow Wapiti Reds, you know, cruising around and. I just assumed that was just the natural order of things. Oh, yeah, so what's that one? That's a wobbly. Oh, it's got the white tail. Oh, yeah, cool. What's that one up there? That's a red. Oh, yeah. And at the time, I was like, these things just kind of intermingle, and that's cool. But without the the, the knowledge that, you know, and there are chamois and tarkers around as well. But, um, yeah, when I think back to, to that trip and how naive I was to it all, uh, it was, it set, you know, sowed the seed for where we are now. And I remember sitting at the Cadrona Tavern at the end of this whole trip thinking, shit, how do I leverage this into something that I can do more often because it was just so so enjoyable and I was dreading yeah. getting back on the boats and filming, you know, more fishing. But, yeah, uh, yeah so. Oh, that's it's pretty cool, man. From. I remember seeing the pilot that you guys filmed. I don't know if it was that. Oh, uh, yep. That, that trip or not, but it was sort of around the time where I was making the transition from cameraman to something else and, I remember looking at it and think, oh, yeah, that's, that looks like a little bit of good oil. Those guys have got the right idea. So I'm glad that it, you know, unlike most New Zealand pilot TV hunting shows, never really come to anything. I'm glad that your one uh, was one of the few that's made the cut. Yeah, cheers. Well, I, I remember I got the, we'd made the pilot and I sent it off to Sky. And I didn't actually send it to anyone else. I just sent it to Sky because I thought this will tailor it to the Sky Sport kind of demo. With the knowledge that I knew, if we went to TVNZ or TV Three, we'd probably get a no. But if we didn't get a no, we'd, we'd get a we'd get a potentially, you know, we'll we'll take it. But we want to change this, 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 and this, and no kill shots and no slow mo and no knives with blood on them or anything like that. Whereas Sky were pretty cool with letting us, you know, make the show we wanted to make. But I, I got the email from Sky the night prior to my mate's wedding, so all my mates are in town in Tauranga and we're having a few beers and. I remember thinking, oh, I better leave to head home. And I was walking to my truck and I got this text saying, um, you know, it's Jeremy Hill from Sky here. Really love your pilot. We can definitely do something. Because I just turned around on my hill, went straight back to the bar and <laughs> bought rounds for everyone. This is over the bloody moon. And I uh, had to get a cab home. But yeah, it was, uh, it was an amazing thinking back to those early days. You know, he took a punt, put a lot of money into the making the, the pilot. We, we hired these, you know, drone operators because at the time drones were not the small little creatures that you carry around in your back pocket like you do these days. Yeah. We had this big bloody octocopter rig which weighed about 20 kilos and had two operators. And so we were trying to cart this bloody thing around the backcountry to get the aerial shots just to give the, sh- the, the, the pilot a little bit of pizzazz yeah. to separate it from the you know, wheat from the chaff. But, yeah. Oh, it's uh, pretty cool, uh, man. Yeah. So run me through this. The what's the difference between filming a Wapiti in the Mountain X high fence to actually filming a Fjord and Wapiti um episode? Well, that it's, that was five years ago. It's the only time we've ever filmed in, in Fjord and and that was an absolute eye opener of um we actually we getting sidetracked a wee bit, we we got approached uh, a month ago by Bateman's publishers to, to write a book about the show, about you know what we've done over the last five years six years so i've been starting writing this book and one of the chapters i've just finished is about that particular trip into fjordland and so it's been quite great just reminiscing and thinking back to what was going through my head at that stage and um that 
I completely underestimated. I'd heard all the stories about Fjordland, but completely underestimated how hard it would be. And I remember rocking up the morning of with, I had way too much kit. I had this pally case full of camera gear that I was dropping to the outside of my pack. Pack would have weighed about 40 kilos and uh, expecting the other guys in the hunting party to say, oh, Dave, that's ludicrous. You know, give us some of that. You know, hand me that lens, hand me that tripod. But they're all like, oh, mate, you're sleeping in the bed, you mate. You're going to have a tough time. And it was <laughs> nine days of just hell. That first day climbing bloody up to 900 metres and just busting through the bloody bush. And it was the hardest thing I've done in my life. And I remember th- thinking, never again. But we've actually drawn a block for next year oh, after four fun. years of failure. So hopefully... Um, yeah, we, we we can we can put one on the deck. But in saying that, you know, that Wapiti trip was what shaped the focus for the series ahead. Yeah, it was um, the the wedding that I went to after finding out about um, the show. One of my mates, this guy Mark Dillon, who was a he's a front man for a rock band down at Otago, is a you know, interesting character. And he said to me, "Oh, I told him about the idea for the series and how we're going to make the show." And he said, "Oh, what you should do." It'd be really cool to see an episode where someone spends like a, a four or five days hunting this this deer and then they stalk in on it and then they decide, nah, I'm not going to shoot it and just let it walk. And I was thinking, that's ludicrous. That's not going to happen. Like that's <laughs> who would want to watch a show like that? That's just. And I said to him, mate, you know, you need a payoff. You know, you can't just have the animal walk away. Everyone will be so disappointed, and kind of left it at that. And then a year later, I'm in Fjordland, and that exact scenario happens. That big. But he 50 inch comes waltzing in. It was 11, not 12. We let it go, and everyone was over. Like we were just so happy in the moment, and it it, it really did change my perception of what we can do with the show. It doesn't have to be animal on the deck uh, in every episode. You can have an experience and, and choose to let the animal go or fail, and and still tell a compelling story if, if you handle it correctly so that trip really was was the i mean as much as the first season we were making up as we go as we went along but that that trip shaped the way that i've filmed ever since yeah it's a it's a pretty awesome place i'm yet to do a proper fjordland wapiti trip myself i've been to fjordland and hunted a number of times and but it's something yeah. that's certainly on my box when i finally get back to new zealand to start putting in i just haven't been putting in because the idea of drawing a block and then not be able to make it, make it gives me mild anxiety. So, yeah, um, I'm just going to bide my time, and it's sort of always in the back of my mind. You know, if I'm struggling to get up and climb a hill or go to the gym or do something, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, you got to keep, keep, keep on keeping on because that that one's a box that I still need to tick. Yeah, well, I'm going to have a busy summer of bloody trying to find hills around the Bay of Islands area. There's not too many to train on, so. <laughs> Yeah. 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 So here's a question for you. If uh what advice would you give a sort of a smart, keen, motivated young person who wanted to get into the professional side of, of filming and hunting in the outdoors? Uh it's not about the camera, it's about being well I, I think it asks what what camera should I buy? What's the best camera? And I say it's the camera that's in your hand when shit's going down. Like you you can capture some of the best stuff I've filmed has been on my bloody iPhone that I've just whipped out of my pocket because things are unfolding and I wasn't ready. So don't get caught up in having to have the latest and greatest and fanciest gear. It's um, it's the stuff you capture either side of those those moments that you can't recreate that also that make it. So the things you can't redo are animal footage or animals being shot. Uh, everything else 
if you want to get uh, a second angle of the guy shooting, you can do that after the fact. So don't get too caught up in, in capturing it always live. There's a few cheats here that we do in, in the world of TV. But yeah, I guess it's about shooting the hell out of it and capturing that human emotion. Like when someone arrives on the scene to check out the animal for the first time, try and walk in with them as they arrive and capture those uh, those moments that we you're not acting. I guess the best stuff I ever film is always when the guys don't realize I'm shooting. Like in the early days, they'd be very uh, robotic when they were talking to camera. And I wouldn't use a lot of that because it would be too structured and too, yeah, you know, they're not TV presenters and they weren't confident. But the best stuff was when they were just busy shooting the shit between the two of them is I'd always have two guys hunting and I'd be filming without them realizing and they're all mic'd up. So those moments were what kind of, what I built the show around was um, the the candid stuff where they didn't realize they were being filmed. And there were times where they'd say, oh man, you can't use that. Uh, I don't want anyone you know hearing me talking about that kind of thing. And so I'd cut it out. Whereas these days we're a bit more, uh, less precious, I guess. We've shown some stuff in the last season that in the early days with no way it would make the cut. Like the guys shooting bull tar with their pants down after just, you know, taking a dump and then seeing a bull tar. And <laughs> just the way that un- that whole sequence unfolded in the early days, it would be like, nah, nah, that, that doesn't show us in a professional light, so we'll scrap it. But now it's it's com- uh, comedy value is important. Mm. Well, that's really good. I mean, that's great advice and it's more you know at the same time it's advice that people should almost ignore is the fact that you need fancy gear to get good quality stuff i mean i've always you know we tell our ultimate oe guys every year that if you're going to take a camera you know it's all very well and good going out and buying a big giant dslr but if it's going to spend the entire season at the bottom of your pack yeah um you're just not going to take photos and the same goes with the video camera so you know, when you're actually professionally filming and that's your sole focus um, the whole time, then it's relatively easy to keep that handy because that's what you're trying to do. But if you're yeah. trying to, you know, film, take photos while you're trying to do something else, i.e. hunt, guide, um, work in any way or do anything else, you know, and hunting included, then you need to have something that you can put your hands on really quickly, really easily or you just won't use it. So. Yeah. You know, if you if you miss those opportunities, like you say, it's impossible to redo that candid stuff, and it's impossible to get an animal to, you know, do a redo. We have a policy: if it didn't, if we didn't capture on camera, it didn't happen. So, the last thing I recently had to to wouldn't have to, <laughs> I chose to be a judge in uh, the Rod and Rifle had a video competition for for amateur videographers, and so I sat and watched thirty five odd short films, and I dread sometimes when I'd push play and it would say 22 minutes you're like Ugh. yeah um, because it'd be 22 minutes and and if i was editing it myself i'd probably bring it down to five six minutes yeah um you've got to be heavy-handed in your edit because people have, have short attention spans it's different if you're making a show for broadcast where you've got specific timings you need to adhere to but for for online which is what 99 percent of people will probably be making videos for don't make them too long or if you do break them up because it's a hard sit to watch 20 25 minutes unless it's really you know compelling story throughout yeah but I mean, if you're um, going to go that yeah. long you really need a storyline that's coherent right the way through so you capture your audience yeah. if it's a 25 minute music video it's a little hard to um stay mm. attentive well the worst ones were when people would would film for two minutes talking about what they'd just seen said oh and the animal came out and it did this and, <laughs> oh, and then i just you know and so i don't want to hear that i want to see it 
Yeah. So show me it. Don't tell me about it. So our policy is if it didn't happen on camera, if it didn't capture on camera, it didn't happen. Do not reference it. Yeah. That's uh, a bloody so, good policy to have. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and really and that's, that falls it back onto me because if I didn't capture on camera, it's my my fault. So, but yeah. Favorite moment while filming? Any time, I mean, from a cameraman um, pr- perspective, you know, I can probably. It's coming recount. next season. Is it? <laughs> yeah. What's that? Oh, it was. It's a, we had this fellow croak hunt earlier this year, and uh, a beautiful countryside. And first day spent, you know, checking out the terrain. Second day, found this nice big fellow, and I'll probably give him given the show away here, but we missed it. And so down in the dumps, everyone's kind of ah oh, shit. You know, that's our one opportunity for this big fellow buck. And then the way it played out over the next three days, we got one the next day and then got a, a, a better one on the second to last day. So we're all chipper. It's like, you know, we've gone through the the lows of missing and then had success. And then on the last day, we're like, well, where do we go to from here? And I said to the guys, look, it'd be awesome if we could like croak one up in the tight country and the close country. And they're like, well, that's a pretty tough ask because we're up in some open tops. So they're like, right, we'll give it a punt, but you know, it's pretty low percentage hunting. But anyway, I went down and, and the, it all played out according to plan. Like, we croaked, and this nice best buck of the trip comes bowling in 100 mile an hour. And ain't I got a good shot away? And so, that that buck is being, um, you know, mounted and it's going to go on my wall because I, again, I feel as though I can lay claim to it, even though I didn't shoot it. Yeah, I, I got some great footage of it, and the way it unfolded, I actually heard it, you know croaking in, in the in the bush too when we were down and close so i really feel as though i've I can lay claim to that it sounds like a selfish thing but that that, that is my that was my moment uh, that trip just played out beautifully oh, good for you, um, man. so it's, that's coming next next season that's pretty cool i can't wait to see that it's mm. it's amazing sometimes when it all does come together have you got any that uh all came together but then somebody or the animal screwed it up for you have you got any of those burning moments if only's yeah, the the chamois was our bogey animal for the first three seasons, and then we we got onto a few season four, so um, we've ticked that box now. But season three, we're it's about our seventh chamois hunt by the stage, and uh, we'd found this nice buck, and we climbed up after it, and there was setting sun on the west coast, and we're on this little razorback ridge line, and Anto's laying, looking at it down the barrel, saying, "Dave, you ready? You ready?" And I'm busy trying to get my, my tripod legs to stand up to lock so I could get like a steady shot to get the slow motion impact. And Dre is behind me, with, and I didn't realise, but he had cramp in his legs. And, and, and he's he's going, ah, ah, my leg, my leg. And I was like, no, 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 straighten the leg, tighten the leg. And he's like, no, no, my leg. And so there's all this confusion, trying to whisper and, and, and also communicate without spooking this animal about how I needed him to tighten the leg of the tripod, otherwise the camera was slipping. Meanwhile, Anto's cool as a cucumber, just laying there saying, guys, it's going to run, it's going to bolt, you know, I need to know, can I take it? And I'm like, no, 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 no. So I learned in that moment after the bloody buck just turned and bolted and bounced down the hill that I should have just said, yeah, take it, mate. You know, let's get this animal on the deck, especially a bogey animal like the buck, uh, the chamois. But um, the, the interesting thing about that moment is that after the, the buck, boosted down the hill and I'm standing on top of this bloody precipice screaming like as many swear words as I could so angry with myself and the boys were just mellow as they're like oh you know that's life that's hunting and and I talked to them later and they said well we got the best of the hunt we stalked in it was a perfectly executed plan we got into position we could have taken the shot but for the nature of the TV we didn't but they were satisfied that they had the better of the animal and and there was a satisfaction in that rather than just the fact that 
you know, they got away so we didn't, you know, satisfy bloodlust or anything silly like that. It wasn't the motivation. They just felt as though they'd, yeah, that they'd, they'd done well. So, hmm, it changed my perspective a wee bit. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's it's a cool way to learn hunting the way that you have. I mean, you, when you started out, you were, as you as you said, pretty oh, inexperienced, was, was pretty naive. But over the last, what, five seasons you've done? Yeah, we're into our sixth now, so producing six. So yeah, so I mean, over that period of time, you, you know, you've, you know, probably done more hunting and more sort of destination um, away overnight sort of hunting than a lot of people. So it's another, you know, that journey itself for your own personal um, benefit is 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 a really cool one, I think, and to have it all documented like that is is really special. Well, there's times that you, you think back and. Um we were just looking at our first season. I saw seven stag species. I saw all seven stags in my first twelve months of hunting. That's so pretty cool. Uh, yeah, and and I didn't realize that till I was just kind of writing this book. I'm like, holy moly! We yeah, we hunted everything, and I uh, some of them weren't uh, you know great uh, indicative um, trophies of of that particular species. Like we saw a, a small salmon and a small rooster, but I saw everything. So. That was, um, yeah, it's quite a rare treat. So I've been lucky to, to experience the highs and lows of hunting. and speaking, still plenty more we want to do. Speaking of lows, have you had any uh, holy shit, we might actually be in the shit here moments? Yeah, we we changed our policy about bull tar hunting <laughs> after this one trip. It's actually funny. We, we had to do a health and safety talk for our um, naming rights partner, Red Stag Timber. So we're down in, at this their, their mill in Rotorua putting on this um, health and safety day where we did a presentation to these multiple groups that came through. And um, within this presentation, we talked about all the unsafe stuff we we did back in the early days and how we're now a lot more professional. We have a health and safety protocol and we go through a lot of paperwork and identifying dangers and hazards. But we're up this, uh, yeah, we're trying to retrieve a bull and we went way too far beyond our comfort zone and I was still a rookie in the, in the in the mountains, so I didn't understand the dangers myself. But I, I remember this one point just anger climbing, thinking, okay, I'm just going to go hard for 15 minutes, just like ice axe, ice axe, kick, kick, climb, 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 climb as hard as I can, and it's going to break the back of this hill, and then I'll, we'll find the bull tower on the other side. So I did that, and then I was exhausted, and then I realized, shit, it's getting steeper and steeper. I can't go any further. I'm going to have to come down now. Everything's melting around me. There's bloody little mini avalanches everywhere, and... That was the one time I got out my phone and filmed a message to my wife and kids because I was like, uh-oh, Jeez. I'm actually in a position here where it could be touch and go whether we get down uh, without bloody uh, ending up on the, the rocks below us. So that was an eye-opener. And um, we got back down you know, a few hours later and sat around and said, look, let's not do that again. You know, For the sake of an animal, um, for our life, you know, we, yeah. So as a result, we, we've changed our policy uh, but it's um it's always hard to not go after the animal because you want to wrap up the storyline in a, in a nice concise you know box. But if if your life's at risk and yeah we had that actually this Monday's episode which is airing on Prime Monday night same thing we're trying to recover some bull tars and and um, that we shot with bow and I got hit in the head with a rock and I've got blood gushing out my forehead and everything slipping around us and we said nah let's let's pull in. And we got criticised when it aired on Sky from a couple of people saying, you know, if you're going to shoot an animal, you've got to recover it. But it's just the answer with, well, you know, man, it's one thing to recover an animal, but I'd much rather be 
you know, not have someone having to recover my carcass as well, rather than just, you know, the, the bull tar. So, yeah. And I mean, that's all very well yeah. saying that too from a third party perspective and saying, oh, if you're going to shoot something, you've got to recover it. But at the same time, sometimes you shoot stuff and it goes somewhere where you can't recover it. You've you got no yeah. control over that. So it does happen. And I think most of the time that it happens, I don't think people talk about it very much. But, you know, you guys are in a position where you're genuinely telling a story. So I think you're better off to yeah. to be honest in that situation because, I mean, that's honestly, as hunters in the mountain environment, it happens. It does mm. happen. Sometimes you just can't get to certain spots. I mean, hunting, you know, mountain goats over here, they're notorious for being a nice sort of flat, knobby country at the top of the hill and you put a bullet in them and they walk themselves to the nearest precipice and throw themselves off. Yeah. So it's it's a really weird behavioural trait when they're in the shit, they do that, but it, it often yeah. results in them being completely and utterly unrecoverable because um, if they yeah. go and they fall down a precipice and land on a bench on the side of a mountain, like you just, you physically can't get to them. So it's a reality that, you know, as mountain hunters, we, you know, you do come across that scenario sometimes. We've put the drone up on a couple of occasions and flown around the area where, where bulls been impacted to try and find out, you know, where it's gone. And you see a blood trail just go, and then no, nowhere off the side of a, a mountain of the cliff. Yeah. And you're like, okay, so he's fallen a couple of hundred meters somewhere around here, but yeah, couldn't find him despite. And this is even the last trip um, flying around in the chopper trying to, 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 to locate the, the carcass. So yeah. yeah, they're hardy critters, the old bull tar. They take a bit of stopping. They do. And, you know, and they live in a nasty environment. And I think people who are like, you never shoot an animal unless you can re- re- recover it. Yeah, that's great. You know, you, you do shoot an animal where you think you can recover it, but sometimes you get it wrong and sometimes they go somewhere you can't deal with. Yeah. And, I mean, it's a, indicative of someone who really hasn't done a lot of mountain hunting. Like, if you tell me that you've shot 100 tar and you've recovered each one of them, I'd be like, whose paddock are you shooting them in? Well, on our first season's on Amazon at the moment, and it's uh, it's available um, in the US. And I had this guy make a comment with a one star rating, and I was like, "The hell! Everything else is five star, five star, five star." <laughs> and the one star rating, he, he berates us for not taking the whole animal out. And I was like, "Well, man, it's a it's a big old bull tar we shot that season. You know, twelve and a half incher, and he's a you know middle of the rut. And uh, this guy's given us one star because we don't carry the meat. And and I understand from an American point of view, where in certain states you know, you have to take everything, don't you, apart from the the, the skin and bone. Um, but for a dirty old bull tar, you know, you're risking your life to try and carry, you know, 40, 50 kilos worth of bloody uh, excess meat that's probably not, you know, only fit to feed your dog. You took, we took the back straps, took the, the cape and the head. I mean, you're not taking the rest of the bloody beast, are you? But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, it, everybody's got slightly different lines in the sand they draw. And we are lucky in New Zealand that there's no, well, I don't know if we're lucky or not. It's a reality in New Zealand that, you know, we don't have any laws and regulations around how much you have to take. I think, you know, if we're if we're brutally honest, at certain times of the year, particularly in the tar rut and in the raw, there's, you know, a tendency for a lot of guys to take just that, the antlers or cape or trophy, mm-hmm. and then maybe a bit of meat if they can fit it in. But, you know, the reality is there's nobody packing a, you know, a whole whoppity out of Fiordland. And there's nobody, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in a shitty spot with a mountain animal like a tar and it's genuinely a, a safety issue of pulling them out of there then you're not going to take a whole bunch of as you say rutting tar meat out you know and risk your life doing it um 
you know, and again, it's a personal thing. Where everyone draws their hand, draws the line in the sand. We're so bloody spoilt in New Zealand that you know it's hard to convince somebody to fill their freezer with dirty old tar meat when we can fill our freezers with you know spring shot yearling venison. You know that we can yeah. shoot on a bush line, and you know that's premium, premium product. So it's it kind of is what it is. We're in a unique scenario where we can justify it through pest control and we can justify it through where we're getting them and you know the reality is we don't need it as much as you might need it here in North America and there's no laws pushing it and it it is hard sometimes explaining I remember my professional career in New Zealand when we're doing a lot of stuff explaining to you know clients that you know often you know it's not only impractical and unsafe to carry it out of here but we can't actually give it away even if we wanted to um, just Mm. because we don't have the right you know um, you know, with the MAF uh, restrictions around where wild meat comes from and how you can give it away, you know, you can give it away, literally give it away, but you can't supply it to anybody. And there's only a certain yeah. certain number of people you want to take that kind of we stuff. We learned so. the hard way um, throwing a, a barbecue for hunting and fishing one time uh, down in at Ballinger's. We we uh, provided some fallow that we chopped the day prior, and then we found out that because it's at a a retail there's a retail element that we're encouraging people to come along to a retail store to get free meat then there's a, a financial transaction so we could potentially be prosecuted and i was like this is crazy because i just wanted to be the good bugger that cooks meat for people to, you know yeah. but yeah that's the reality of the situation is that if it's uh yeah, encouraging people to attend somewhere where they spend money then it's financial so yeah yeah it's really interesting and it is different mm. yeah and it is hard for, like you say, Americans looking at how we do things and sometimes vice versa. It's hard for Kiwis to look at the way North Americans do things. you just got to have, again, just like you do with the anti-hunters, have a little bit of empathy for people who have grown up in a different environment. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. they just don't understand. Well, we've got a policy. We'll always take meat off anything that we kill now, uh, especially guys like Dre, and he's he's converted us all. We're all heart fans. I love eating heart, no matter what the animal so heart good, seems to be. Just yeah, so good. And uh, so I've changed my tune about offal. And you know, it's the, the trick for us is we've actually wanted to shoot some nannies in the last few seasons, and we've gone out and not been able to. We've, we've just been finding bulls. So that's going to get uh, be, be more of the case this November. We're going back out in a few weeks, and after all the culling that's been going down, I imagine it's going to be hard to find uh, good eating young juveniles and nannies these days. Yeah, but um, there should be plenty of bulls, hopefully still. But uh, it'll yeah, be we'll interesting to see what you guys run into. I know. Yeah, current- well, we're going into a similar spot that we went into two years ago. I'm always reluctant to do the same show twice. I don't want to just cover the same ground. But in this instance, it's it's going to be nice to to uh it's not exactly the same valley it's the next one over but it'll be good to compare and contrast what we encountered then to what we're going to encounter this time uh in light of what's gone down so it will be interesting Mm. all right so i know you're not going to go ahead and tell me about the crew if i asked you which one was the best hunter out of all of them and all that kind of stuff because you might uh, end up with a little bit of blowback from the lads but um i'll give you some quick fire questions so out of your crew for for Hunters Club, who's the most likely to blow you out on the hill? Tim. No, Tim. the old Tim. The old Tim. <laughs> Big under Tim. He's, well, new Tim's got a bit of a motor now. Uh, he's uh, well, he's always had a bit of a motor, but he's he's the one guy that Dre came uh, on the first hunts they did together for the show, and, and Dre said to me afterwards, I can't believe how fit 
Tim is. He's just got lungs on him. And this is like we were hunting up the uh, somewhere in Central uh, South Island. Dre's a beast. Like he runs a CrossFit gym. He's just Mr. Fitness. But Timmy was climbing these bloody hills and he'd be cracking a can of Coke at the top and having a dart while Dre's still struggling to keep up. <laughs> and uh, he's since laid off the darts, but he hasn't laid off the cans of Coke. And I think uh, he's got that real sweet tooth. But yeah, Tim, for, for if you look at him, you wouldn't think he's a, a specimen, but he's just got big lungs, big ticker. He's a diver, so I think that must help stretch the old old lungs. Yeah, no uh, he, he doesn't slow down. And I've done a couple of hunts with him where... Yeah, we've been broken men by the end of it. And uh, yeah, he's always got a smile on his face though at the end. So that's yeah, bloody good. So yeah. All right. So from a cameraman perspective, who's the one you have to watch the most that might pull the trigger before you're ready? Uh, Curly. Curly. Um, <laughs> Curly's, th- I, I always say, give me three seconds, give me three seconds. And I've got on, and Antos is bad as well because I've got it recorded. You can hear me in the background saying, okay, I'm ready. Give me three seconds before you pull the trigger. And they go, yep, three, bang. <laughs> and it's, often it's about a, a second and 12 frame like one and a half seconds so i guess in their hyper electric state of mind as they're looking down the barrel that three must be happening really fast because they go three two one boom and i've <laughs> almost missed it a couple of times where because i need to push the button to start camera rolling and whatnot but uh yeah curly's he's he's impulsive but in saying that like they're all pretty good now they're not gonna bang off something in the bush without me rolling it's more about yeah that um structured shooting right it all comes down to communication right when you start getting good at tv it's that communication line between cameraman and the guy pulling the trigger if you don't have that then the chances of you getting a decent kill shot are about zero well i can read their body behavior now like their, their, their body language whereas in the early days i couldn't so if i you know you're spending eight hours talking through the bush it's hard to stay alert as a cameraman but now I, I look ahead and I see their shoulders kind of just kind of go up and, and movements change and, and then I start recording because I know that shit could happen in any second yeah a lot of the times it'll be just a bird in the bush that's just going to make a noise but um and pre-roll on cameras that gets me out of trouble a lot so you have a, a button you hit the button and you've taken the last three seconds of actuality so that pre-roll often yeah. Oh, really? You can get away with it, yeah. I never got that feature. No, well, when I was saying iTunes Fishing Show, we never had it. So filming Marlin, you're just going to have to film the teasers and you chew up tape after tape after tape just filming teasers in the water and it's sucked. And um, so, yeah, I, I love pre-roll. It gets you out of a lot of trouble. Makes you look like a better cameraman than, than you really are because people think, oh, you did well to be rolling for that moment. But it's, uh, yeah. That's really cool. All right, who's most likely to forget something on a trip? Dre. Dre? Dre for sure, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's just got, he's just juggling a lot of balls. He's got so much on that he's a busy man. He's potentially, I'll let the cat out of the bag, he, he might even be representing Tonga at the Olympics next year in, in, in kayaking. How's that for you? That's a No shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just casually. It's, it's a hilarious story. I don't know if he's committed yet, so I might be throwing around the bus. But yeah, the, the the fellow that was the flag bearer for them for the last couple of Olympics, he went to the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics, and um, he was doing like cross country skiing at the Winter Olympics. So he became quite a celebrity because he was this, you know, handsome Tongan fellow. Anyway, he was trying to qualify for the the, the kayaking and um, wasn't able to um, nail the the time required, and he, apparently he couldn't 
couldn't stay in the boat well enough. They're pretty tricky little K, those K one things that you know Ian Ferguson, Paul McDonald yeah. stole kayaks. And so the Olympic Foundation got in touch with Dre and said, "Look, you live near Lake Carapero, you're in Hamilton. You're obviously the right uh, build and size. Do you want to have a have a nudge?" So he's tossing up whether he has a crack for the Tongan Olympic team next year or continues um, trying for qualification for the Worlds uh, of CrossFit, which around the same time. So. Yeah, so he's, he's juggling that, plus being a father and running a gym and being a geotechnical engineer and being, you know, Hunters Club founding member. So he's the kind of guy that's you're in the bush and then you realise, oh, yeah, he's left something but, you know, back or he's got a Kumara in his pack. He's, a couple of times he had to have a Kumara and I'm battling away with like my 40 kilos worth of gear and there's busting at the seams and then he's pulling his stuff out. Oh, I've got this Kumara from last trip and how the hell did... <laughs> so. He's, uh, a, he's a good character, though. That is funny. I, I know I enjoyed the podcast that Curran did with him. We must do yeah. a follow up post post CrossFit, and then obviously this is yeah. the, well, New Zealand or Tonga's own Jamaican boxing <laughs> yeah. team tour story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we bloody entertaining. All right, who's the best yeah. shot with a rifle? Anto. Anto's he spends the most time at the range, and he's most committed to the dark art of long range right. then oh, Sam would be uh, probably close second and then Curly Dre then Tim Tim's you know he doesn't shoot anything over two, 250 yeah he's a big he, he, and he, he'll really admit it but yeah Anto the shot that he the best shot we've ever had on the show was I wasn't even filming it because I was busy up in the hill with, with Marty at the time but we were in Fjordland and Anto bowled one from 575 off off the side of the pure salt uh, the, 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 the charter boat and um, we still talk about that a lot. It was, a, you know, a hell of a shot. So he's he's the one that I can normally just rely on him hitting the animal perfectly right. in the shoulder crease. And it's I'm less nervous, let's just say, when I'm recording, <laughs> pressing the button before he pulls trigger. Yeah. Whereas it's been a few misses um, that, uh, yeah leave you in trouble a miss is better than a wounding though we've only had one wounding and it didn't make the cut so when you wound an animal and then you spend a day tracking the bloody thing and finding blood trails that doesn't translate well on camera so we we try and minimize the risk of that ever happening by cutting distance down and having the guys particularly um, proficient with their shooting and they spend federal have been great that they give the guys a lot of ammunition so there's no excuse for them to be missing when right. they can just get around the range and put a lot of bloody Play lead away. down there yeah best shot with a bow uh definitely dre uh yeah. dre this is the order the picking order would be dre tim anto dan so dan does a bit but he hasn't done a lot in the last wee while anto right. he we, we shot a few goats and i showed Dre the footage and Dre's like you can't show that can't show that can't show that <laughs> so so oh really I thought they were good shots but I, I didn't realise where, where a bow hunter's aiming is is quite different to a, to a rifle shooter you're not trying to get through that shoulders that you're trying to hit low through heart and lung aren't you rather yeah. than blasting through the shoulder so there's a, a bit of a different uh, technique there although no actually Caden Caden I can probably claim Caden as a, as a hunters club member now he's been on Three episodes, so he's, yeah, he's, he's pretty fucking handy little bugger, isn't he? Yeah, except when there's uh D loop breaks mid bloody pull when you're eight meters from a from a bull tar, <laughs> which um at at the time I was so I was so gutted. I was like, man, we got so close, but 
in light of the episode, that was the best thing that could have happened. It was good TV because we had documentation of it and had that initial reaction and you know the frustration, but it actually made it for a quite a cool sequence. That's again, that's on this Monday's episode. Cool. But, uh, yeah. Real cool. All right. So in your professional life, so think over you know your years going all the way back from university. Have you got a sort of a favourite mistake or a, a favourite failure that you've learned a lot from? If you look back now, like where did you, you know, really get some value out of making a wrong decision? Hmm. I once left the rushes in Wichita when I was working on an oil rig working, uh, it was an oil rig show in, based out of Kansas. And uh, we went to Wichita to follow these oil rig workers, um, Wildcat as it was called, the, the show for discovery and uh, we got on the piss and I was in charge of we had probably a month's worth of tape that we'd been filming to tape and I had this box and we we got heinously drunk and I left it at the hotel and I remember just being beside myself as we got back to Kansas going oh my god where are the tapes where are the tapes and this is this is you know two camera shoot quite a big operation and I was due to send the tapes back to to London where they were being edited and I was yeah it was a, a horrible feeling and it's that whole lost media side of things that that would have sank the entire operation with this for like you know, a month's worth of filming so now i think i learned a hell of a lot through that experience of how important it is to back up your work because you don't want you know cards go down cameras crash uh but losing media it's there's no excuse now that's all electronic you can you can back it up this immediately immediately after you get out of the, the bush because that that the two days before we found the tapes again, the bloody uh, cleaner had gone through and just taken them. So, okay. um, yeah, we, we got them back. But it was a stressful moment. So that was probably one of those, you know, learning curves. You make mistakes as, as, a, as a youngster growing up and, you know, you got to learn from them. Yeah, so. I mean, that would have been hellishly stressful. Oh, I wouldn't have been able to get a job in, in London after that. Like they would have said, oh, you're the guy that lost the months worth of filming for the Discovery <laughs> Show. Yep, that's me. <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> Woohoo. Yeah. Um, favorite bit of kit that you take on these hunting trips when you're filming? Have you got one? Like a favorite go-to that comes with you everywhere? It's probably favorite, and oh, it's hard to say if it's favorite or least favorite. That my, my time lapse stuff, the syrup gear, it's heavy, bulky, takes a lot of time in admin, but you get great uh, time lapse slider, so it moves along a track, yeah, and takes shots, and and it gives a little bit of extra panache to your time lapse shots. Although it takes it's always a bit of a headache to set up and break down and it adds an extra eight kilos to your gear. So, but yeah, I, I, I get a bit, I get it quite attached to that. Um, there are times where I want to throw it down the bloody hill cause it's extra weight or actually not to be honest, my drone, the drones just, it, it allows us to get a sense of scale of the country, the side that we're in, like Drones are getting used, you know, in every bloody show under the sun these days. But we're lucky in that we, we put ours up to the max height that you can reach legally um, without getting to airspace. And it really does paint a, that kind of Lord of the Rings style picture of, wow, they're in the middle of nowhere. There's, yeah. there's no human habitation around you. There's no you know, buildings, no power lines, nothing like that. You, you're in the middle of the bush. And it's hard to get that unless you're on a bloody mountaintop. Uh, with the main camera, so it's a it's a bloody good tool to to explain you know where you are. What drone do you use? Uh, I've got I've got three on my shelf at the moment. I've got two 
Actually, no, I've just sent one to Caden. I've got two. I've got a, a Mavic Air and a Mavic Pro 2 with a Hasselblad. Although we've just, I've got a, I've got a phone call later today. DJI in China have just got in touch. They want us to be ambassadors for their, for their uh, test user group. So they're going to start sending us the, the, the prototype stuff. So we're all excited because oh, that's cool. there's some pretty cool tech coming by the sounds of things. There's even talk of a bloody drone with thermal capability, which we're not too well. We've got a, a policy amongst the show. We'll use thermal gear for pest control, but not for big game. It just opens up a lot of criticism if you're reliant on technology to, you know, be successful uh, with with tar chamois. Yeah, you know, deer. It's, it's certainly it's, a slippery slope as it is, and you it throw is. it underneath it's a, a drone, one. it'll be a bit scary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. If we can utilize it for, for Wallaby, and uh, we might, there's a, we're tossing up the idea of doing some a pig hunt around Farewell Spit. There's um, Docker trying to eradicate the pigs off Farewell Spit, and they use a whole lot of high tech gear to, to find the pigs out on the dunes. So that that could lend itself well to using the drone with thermal gear. But again, it's, it's, it's one of those ones. We talk about it as a group, and that's one of the benefits of having five different guys that have. You know, we, 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 every new piece of technology that, you know, comes, that makes hunting easier, it also brings with it politics. So we yeah. talk about it as a group about whether we want to use them or not. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So uh, if you could sort of deliver one message to New Zealand hunters or, I guess, New Zealand young budding cameramen, what would it be? Uh, shoot the shit out of it. That's that's kind of my policy. Just sh- if you want to, if you want to do some filming, no, that's, <laughs> so that's, shoot that's the shit out of it message. with a video camera. No. Yeah, sorry, yeah, rifle. it's a terrible message to say to hunters. That's a great <laughs> message to say to cameramen. Yeah, shoot the shit out of it. Like just film, film plenty because you never know when that little magic moment could just happen. And, and and just film plenty, but edit hard. Like be be harsh. Um, I'm guilty of it myself. I'll, I'll do a first layout of an episode, and it's it's an hour and ten, and it needs to be down to forty-five. And I'm like, oh, how am I going to get that out? And then I, I wait a week, and then I come back to it, and I go, oh, that's garbage, that's rubbish, that doesn't add to the story. That's just pretty for the sake of it. So don't get attached to pretty shots just for their being for them being pretty. Like it's storyline that's key. So shoot the shit out of it. Then it gives you options to tell that story after the fact. Um, so yeah, that's my message to cameramen. Yeah. Be shoot plenty and edit hard. So yeah. get the best stuff and, and, and it's like boiling down making a jus instead of a gravy. You know, get that bloody nice punchy strong paste that goes well on your steak rather nice. than a big sloppy mess that no one's gonna you know have one spoonful and be sick of it. Nice. Well, that's good advice. And I think that's probably a good note to finish on unless you've uh, <laughs> got any other words of wisdom. Now. No, that's all for me, mate. I'm I'm bloody uh I'm tapped out. I, I don't get to talk too often uh, about the show. I'm, I'm <laughs> Behind the scenes, but yeah. Well, to be honest with it, we we chatted for probably twenty five minutes before we hit record, so it's <laughs> yeah. a relatively solid uh, conversation for two of us that generally spend a lot of time staring at a computer screen. Yeah. Well, cheers, man. Thanks for the opportunity to to yeah. No, my Shoot pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. G'day. Thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at The Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. 
Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode. Other than that, thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.